Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 60 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, Daryl Edge, take you aboard the journey to true Cage Nirvana as we learn to get a little bit closer to the man, the myth, the legend, the actor they call Nicholas Cage, and get to know him a little bit better, get a bit closer to the golden hog of Hollywood himself by watching every film the man has ever been in. Hope you're well. If you're in the UK, I hope you're surviving in this absolute heat wave that we're having at the moment. I'm uh, I'm not doing well now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a ginger man. I was not built for these conditions. I am sweating. I've been trying to edit the episode that you're listening to for so long, and all I can see is demons rather than audio information I need to edit the episode but I think we just about got there apologies there's like a random buzzing in the background of this episode I'm not sure what that was um I think it was something that happened over the zoom call but didn't clock it at the time um but wasn't able to get rid of it unfortunately so really sorry about that um but other than that it's a really good episode that you've got coming up today I was joined by writer Alexander Cronenberg to talk about season of the witch from 2011 and we get into all sorts so we talk about the uh, the duality of cage the accent used by stephen graham and we ponder what was the real method to the madness of that ruddy demon in the movie as well um i won't keep myself lingering too long because i want to get this uploaded because i'm i'm sweating and i, I want to die to be honest with you it's too hot it's unforgivably hot help me um so you can find me on twitter at cage underscore podcast we are closing in on 900 followers be lovely if you can go follow me over there you can follow me on instagram as well at cage underscore podcast and you can follow on all the usual streaming services that is apple acast Podchaser, stitcher deezer google amazon iHeartRadio, tuned in um, if you listen on one of the platforms in which you can leave a rating or follow as well such as apple or Podchaser. if you could please drop us a like and a follow leave a rating that would really help uh, you can also support the podcast by throwing something over on the coffee page link in the link tree and all the social media is mentioned um, and then there's a popular box uk affiliate link if you want to get some pops and help chip in and support your boy a little bit as well always appreciated but thank you as ever for listening let's get into the episode now it's episode 60 running number 60 it's down edge alexander cronenberg season of the witch Ta. We continue the supernatural vibe of Cage's 2011 this week with Season of the Witch. This week, Cage stars a Sir Bayman von Blybrook, a 14th century crusader tasked with transporting a girl who is suspected to be the source of the Black Death to monks in hope of lifting the cursed land. Now joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Season of the Witch tis the season to be jolly or if it's just giving us a bit of seasonal depression is writer Alexander Cronenberg. Alexander, how are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm so, so happy to be on the pod, listened for a long time, so it's, uh, it's really cool to be here with you. 
thank well thank you very much for listening thank you even more uh for joining me um so you may have probably know with the start of these sort of um episodes i'm always interested to know with uh, all the new guests your sort of thoughts your feelings theories why not on uh nicholas cage uh, how do you sort of perceive the actor and um you know how do you rate him um, I think he's a really, really interesting guy. Well, first of all, I, I should probably say that I, I kind of adore him in every aspect of him. Um, and I know that I've got to put that aside sometimes for, for kind of like professional purposes, but, but I adore him. And I think he's a really interesting actor, and not only because his roles are so um, varied, but also because you get two Nicolas Cages. I think you get you get the Nicholas Cage, who's Oscar-worthy, um, serious actor who who kind of puts his all into into every role that he you know he comes across, every serious role that he comes across, and um, can kind of bring out every single emotion known to man. And then you get the other Nicholas Cage, who you know some would say cashing out a check, some would say um, the films are kind of terrible. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, and you know that they're entitled to that, but but I kind of love, love both of those guys. And there's no, I don't think there's many actors, or I can't think of any other actor who, no matter what he does, he's the best thing for Rom starring X Vader, Hayden Christensen. He will be the best thing in that in that film. You can guarantee he's eternally watchable. And um, I think that's something that people kind of forget that even though the film might be dreadful, and you're sitting there, think sitting there thinking like this was the cheesiest piece of shit I've ever come across. <laughs> he will be the best thing in that film. So, fair play to him. Um, so I've loved him for a long, long, long time. Um, and uh, I actually, I wrote, uh, I wrote a letter to him. <laughs> right. Yeah, this, so this happened a while ago where I was in, kind of encouraged by a friend to write a letter to Nick Cage because he thinks that that's what Nick would. And that just sounds odd. I felt like it would be a cool thing to do. So I kind of wrote him a letter and just said like how much I admire his work and kind of just thought, you know, if he's ever in the area, let's grab a drink and we can have a chat. Yeah. Uh, I haven't sent it because where do you send that? It's <laughs> <laughs> Castle or, you know, well, I think Castle's been um, being possessed now. But uh, yeah, where do, you, where do you send that off to? Um, yeah. So yeah, a big love for him in, in, in kind of both senses, really. Love that. I mean, that's a, I mean, good question. Obviously, one, where do you send that letter? Is it, he's castle in, I think, one in Glastonbury. He's probably got some place mm. in New Orleans or wherever it is he's moving around. I feel like he's always moving. Um, he's got no fixed location, um, this cage. Um, it's, it's either short of that or going through some kind of management company wants to use, give him a million dollars for a speech at a post-dinner circuit or something, which if I had a million dollars to spare... I absolutely would, and it would just be me and him. Um, and I would get dressed up for it, full tux and everything. Um, absolutely go so the full <laughs> the full hog of a cage. Um, but I, I completely agree with what you say as well. Like we get the two cages. I think it's interesting with him. It's like uh I guess like a, a duality of cage almost, because you can get the cage grounded in reality. You can get um, you know, a leaving Las Vegas cage, a Joe cage. Or you can get full vampires kiss wicker man cage um because again i think this is something i say all the time and i sort of preface it with this you know i have to remind you the listener the man can act 
Um, I'm not, I've not done this podcast for 60 odd episodes at this point as a joke because I'm bored. Um, you know, he's got the awards to prove it, but I think it's not so much, again, realism he's interested in or more just the abstract of humanity and exploring the, um, the realms of imagination almost. I mean, it does make him sound like a cartoon character. And I think in some ways, maybe he is, um, but I suppose it must be interesting because I don't know of many actors, I think, who you can even put on that same equation with him. Um, you know, I've, I've thought about who who's who else is as interesting, sort of as on screen and off screen as Nicolas Cage. Um, and I don't know if you've got anyone who might even sort of touch that uh, base. But I, I think for me, maybe Willem Dafoe is around that area. But again, I don't know if there's anyone that you think could be. Um, on that that Rushmore next to Cage. No, I, I just you know I struggle. I've got obviously I have um, my my kind of a list of my favourite actors and people who I always think put across a great performance, but but not, not someone who's got that level of magnetism. Um, and I think what you said is is true about that cartoonish appeal and what he brings to that role. But I certainly think that he's he's a tapestry, he's like, he's like a, a collage or like, I guess it's a French term bricolage, which is about like bringing multiple kind of, um, bringing multiple sources and inspirations into making something new. And I think he is the acting epitome of bricolage because for every role, if you listen to him talk for most of his roles, he's pulling from sources that you've never even considered for these roles. You know, it could be a very simplistic action film, but he's looking at, French poetry, he's looking at kind of um, paintings from the medieval period and he's bringing all these different things. I mean, well, this is this is what I was thinking about when I was doing this. Like, you know, you might not be thinking about that, but that's what I'm getting from it. I think that is, it's just something to be admired, really. I think it's, it's fantastic. He's such a well-read and um, kind of cultured, really, really cultured guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really love that about him. Um, but no, not not a huge amount of other people who I can think of who who kind of offer that, yeah, offer the same thing really. Yeah, and I think touching on what you said there as well, I think this is something else that um, maybe people who aren't as uh, to coin the term as deep in the cage rabbit hole as we might be, um, I think you you see. Um, and again, I'm sort of pained to say it, but almost quote unquote, the worst of Cage. You see a compilation of him screaming on the internet and you think, oh, this guy, this is the guy that takes any role that's given to him. But again, um, exactly as you said, you listen to him talking in interviews and I've been down you know, many uh, YouTube holes of just watching him in interviews and like film uh, sort of previews and prep and stuff like that. And it is easy to sort of displace and forget that he is, again, an intelligent man, a well-read man, a cultured man. And, you know, I think the number of times he says, you know, I wanted to go into this place. I was channeling German expressionism. I was channeling sort of the actors of like, you know, like the 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, On the outside, you might just see this insane uh, rattling uh, skeleton of a man with all this kinetic energy, like lightning in a bottle. And you're like, this is unbelievable. I've never seen a man like this, but you peel those layers and it's, it, it is, it is, um, you know, and I hope I don't sound like I'm talking complete shit right now, but it is artistry what he does. And at yeah. this point, you know, it's still weird. I don't know if you've sort of ever had this because I've, I've spoken to people on and off the podcast before um, where 
um, certain people might be um, the cage fan in their friendship groups. And then um, you, you say to someone, oh, no, I, I like Nicolas Cage. And then I've had it before numerous times where I've kind of had to justify, like, no, like, I'm genuinely not. I'm not joking. Yeah. I'm not doing a bit like I do think he's brilliant. But yeah. And I don't know if you found that as well. You've ever had to um, find yourself justifying him. Well, there, there is obviously the ironic cage fan, uh, you know, that they, and that's absolutely fine. They say, well, you know, I, I love the Wicker Man and stuff like that. And you think, oh, you know, okay, that's, you like that aspect of him. But I think to actually, to some people, I, you know, I have this, I feel like I have to justify myself to other people and some of, of my students as well in the past where they are kind of taken the piss a little bit and they put pictures of him in, you know, as a pickle or as somebody's stomach and stuff like that. <laughs> and, you know, that's fine, and I do appreciate that side of him. He is very memeable. Um, but uh, there's a reason why he's worked with Scorsese. You know, there's a reason why he's worked with Brian De Palma. There's a reason why he's worked with John Woo, all these different people. It's because he puts everything into that role. And you might not see all of it. You know, just remember that the percentage that you're actually getting on screen it's probably 20% of, of what he's done. You know, I, I know that quote from Moonstruck where he said that he went into Moonstruck thinking that that character, uh, I forget his name, but oh, I can't remember his name, but the, but the character was supposed to be like a, an old Beauty and the French version of Beauty and the Beast. He was supposed to be the French beast. And he was doing this kind of French gruff voice um, in that role, first of all. But then the director kind of said that the daily is coming back and it's not working. So we had to strip it away. And, you know, I absolutely love, that's one of my favourite films of all time. And, you know, one of my favourite Cage films. Um, so I love everything that you put into that. But, uh, but I think that was just a percentage of what he wanted to do with that role. Maybe it takes a strong director to kind of say, let's, let's rein it in, let's rein it in and, mm -hmm. and then see what we've got and, you know, pick and choose which which cagey moments that we get in that in that role absolutely i think it's something i've said before i what i think with cage sometimes um because i also I, I still think that as an actor he's still um by the book and i know he said in interviews that he doesn't really view it as um acting and i also i don't think he's not one of those actors who thinks he's um, above the craft or sort of worthy of Hollywood attention. He's still a man who's, you know, there to to act, to work, to learn, to still push himself. You know, the man's, at the time of recording, 57 years old. He's been in the business for 40-something years. Of course, mm -hmm. coming from the, the the famous Coppola family who have uh, branches and roots in every arm of the, uh, the media and cinematic industry. Um, and, you know, he could have ridden those coattails. He didn't. He did his own thing. He's done every... I think it's fair to say of anyone you've known as an actor, he's completely done it his way. Um, and I always find as well that whether the film is good or bad, and this is one where I sort of... I would use something like Deadfall, which is known as one, perhaps one of the cagiest cage films that there is. Um, even though the film itself is, with respect, a steaming pile... Um, Nicholas Cage is, <laughs> is the best thing about it and he's the most memorable thing because he's gone in there um, and he's given it everything he's made a completely memorable performance and I came away from the film and even though you know did I love the film no absolutely not but did I just love what Cage was doing and just going a, a completely different level that I just don't think 
any other actor would have gone to absolutely so he's always um always absolutely memorable um and on, on that note as well i say with with memorable cage films performances do you have you know let's hit outside a season of the witch uh, a memorable cage performance for you a favorite cage film uh, that sticks with you oh no you said outside of season of the witch that was going to be my number one <laughs> uh well like i say moonstruck i think moonstruck is absolutely wonderful i do quote the kind of um, the hand scene uh, regularly but um <laughs> definitely up there adaptation is fantastic he should have won an Oscar for that. I think he himself is quite aggrieved that that didn't happen um, because he portrays two roles, two incredibly different roles, amazingly. Um, and the, what makes it harder is that the director of the film or the writer of the film uh, is there, is in the room and he's portraying the writer in an exaggerated way, sure, but he's doing that in front of that person. And I think that must be so intimidating and really, really, really hard to do. And you've got to be, you've got to be an assured guy to kind of get that right. And I think he's magnificent in that film. And I know, um, I think it was Chris Cooper. Well, I think Chris Cooper won supporting possibly that year. I'm sure Mel Streep won yeah. as well. Uh, and I think Cage is better in both than that film, uh, and carries absolutely carries it. There's, that film wouldn't work if it was a lesser actor because it, it, it just balances on the duality of the performance. And if he doesn't get that right, then it either comes across laughable, um, or it just doesn't come across. Um, and I think it, it, it's absolutely wonderful, wonderful performance. Um, so adaptation. I think on the other side, I think you know I grew up watching. Um, the Rock face off uh, his action kind of period and Connor. Uh, my third, <laughs> my first film that I ever saw, uh, a Nick Cage film that I ever saw, was with my dad, and he introduced me to Honeymoon in Vegas. Yeah. Um, which at the time I absolutely, I've, I've gone back and rewatched it since then. It's not that great, but I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with it. But he always used to get confused because people would go, "Oh, such a sad film, such a terribly <laughs> sad film," and they'd be like. I don't remember it being that sad. There was, there was loads of Elvises. It wasn't that sad, was it? <laughs> was like, oh, but then he drinks himself to death. I was like, I've missed something. Missed something. I remember Vegas. <laughs> Completely confused with leaving Las Vegas, um, which I which I eventually got round to, and it's a very very different, <laughs> very very different. <laughs> if he had drunk himself to death at the end of Honeymoon, that would have been a very very different film. <laughs> um... Yeah. A crossover to Sex and the City, just like at the end of that, Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker leads into leaves to New York and becomes a writer because <laughs> her alcoholic Elvis impersonating boyfriend drank himself to death at the end of the film. I mean, that's that's the missing Sex and the City plot right there. Um, Hollywood, if you're listening, get this man on the phone. Right. <laughs> it's a crossover to end all crossovers. Give up Marvel. <laughs> Forget forget your MCU. And as far as I'm concerned, if if Cage isn't coming back as Ghost Rider in the new Doctor Strange, I'm out. I'm not interested. I don't want to know about it. How haven't they approached him for that yet? I, I don't understand. Even if it's a cameo as you know, a fully CGI'd Ghost Rider face, I think you've got it. You've got to come back to him, haven't you? You would think so. I mean, I know they had the um Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Robbie Reyes, car-driving Ghost Rider for a while. I think he was supposed to get a backdoor pilot, but that never panned out. Um, but I think that alluded to the fact there is the two Ghost Riders in that universe. Um, right. 
I think there was something about after Ghost Rider 2, I think that he sort of stepped, he always said he'd stepped away from it. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see him back. I think it would just be such a, a great sort of callback to, I think, as I've described before, these early days of, well, relatively early days in film since Marvel when it was just the wild west of Marvel films and it was just no connection. Here's a Spider-Man, here's a Hulk, there's a Wolverine. Yeah. Um, and just in the middle of that, just two outrageous Ghost Rider films because that, <laughs> because why not? Um, yeah. I think it would be great, but sometimes I do wonder as well, even though I appreciate he is immortal in godlike terms, in human terms, he is also a 57-year-old man. So sometimes I just wonder, you know, when that go that inevitable uh, gut punching Ghost Rider reboot is coming, um, and on that day, I think I'll uh, leaving Las Vegas myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we we hold out hope. We hold out. I hope. still think I, I still hold out hope that one day, one day he'll get to make that Superman film. Um, and I know it'll be very different, and I know that maybe you know stories and will change and narratives will change. And, whatever but I think that he holds so much love for that I, I kind of I, I watched a long documentary about the breakdown of that happening I can't remember the name the actual Superman film now Superman Lives maybe was it and anyway I, I, I still think he holds a lot of love for that character um, mm -hmm. and I can see him wanting to do that so it seems to me like if they go for a director who's willing to take risks a Raimi-like director uh, you know maybe even Tim Burton I can still see that happen, so I would love nothing more than, than that too. That's cool. And I think Superman needs a bit of kind of, he needs a bit of a light-heartedness brought to it now, doesn't he? I think we've had our um, psycho killer Superman and Batman and stuff like that, let's maybe, maybe let's go a different direction. Yeah, I think that's been one of the issues with the DC film for me. I've, I've liked them, but I've always felt, I think, I've not really known what their their angle is are they dark films are they light films what their universe is i think marvel's i think they've had longer at it to be fair but they've always had a better sense of um what they're trying to do so um i think if we're going to get a cage superman i mean we did have him voice superman in teen titans go to the movies which i think is a bit of a nod um but i think the only hope if they go down that route is if they do it with a flash film because i think that's set to be a kind of multiverse kind of film as well I think they've got um, Michael Keaton back as Batman. For, I think I've seen from like gossip and set photos and stuff. So uh, the fanboy, the hoper in me, the dreamer is hoping that there'll be uh, a Nick Cage, Clark Kent in there just to, you know, cross the, cross the T's, dot the I's, just give the people what they want. Um, he deserves it, doesn't he? I think he does it. He's done his time and I think he... He's done so much and he's reinvented himself kind of hundreds of times. And that, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, Pig looks like another reinvention. Um, and I wonder whether Pig might be his gateway back into something a little bit, uh, you know, well budgeted. Um, not that he needs that. And, you know, I think his work recently has been absolutely fantastic and, and some of his best stuff. But, but I just wonder whether he'll start to pull back some of those kind of. Um, Doubters in Hollywood. Um, we'll, you know, we'll wait and see. But yeah, I mean, I think my only concern um, with Pig is that not that I'm obviously angry that it's gonna that it seems like it's gonna draw a crowd. I think after the first day, of the trade there's been like the millions of views on YouTube. 
but I think, you know, so many of those people are going to be there. This is the John Wick pig film. And then they're going to go into this film and it's going to be some kind of melancholic, uh, quiet, um, contemplative, emotional film. I think a lot of people are going to be um, confused and going with the wrong ideas. And maybe that's going to, like, I hope it doesn't. And I hope it wins it over, obviously. But I think a lot of people are going to just come out a bit spoiled um, for pig. Um, obviously, still hoping that we get it. Uh, as release date in the UK towards mid-July 2021. Um, it looks like from a UK perspective, the best we're going to get is The Croods 2 at cinema. Um, that was not, you know, I'm not angry about it. Uh, it's not the Cage film I was hoping to see back at the cinema, but you know what, in these times that we live in right now, these um, coronavirus times, um, I'll take what I can get uh, as far as as far as Cage is concerned. Um now, I suppose speaking of the cinema as well, I suppose when we were talking about this film, Season of the Witch, uh, you mentioned that you thought you might be one of the only people who actually uh, saw Season of the Witch, what must have been about 10 years ago. Um, I suppose as we go into the film now, what were your sort of like memories of going and see this at the cinema and how did you, what were your thoughts on it back then? Well, I dragged along a bunch of friends, so I think I dragged along about three or four friends and, and kind of said, oh, come on, it'll be a lot of fun. And, um, I think at the time they were probably more interested in Ron Perlman, God knows why. Um, <laughs> I think it was around his Hellboy, Hellboy time. Uh, so they may have been more interested in him. I remember it being, uh, I remember it being fun. I remember coming out just thinking, oh yeah, you know, that's a great time. We've had a, a good laugh. And I think some of them might've been into Van Helsing and a couple of the other types of films like that at the time, that kind of very um, family friendly horror. Um, so I think uh, I came out thinking it was a good time and not certainly not one of the worst Nicolas Cage films I've ever seen. Some uh, interesting elements to it, some laughable moments as well, which we'll, which we'll kind of, I'm sure, touch upon. Uh, not one that I rushed to see, although saying that, I kind of spent £12 on the cinema ticket, then I've gone and bought it on Blu-ray just for this pod, <laughs> which came in with a fantastic lenticular sleeve of a, a slightly holographic Ron Perlman, um, <laughs> which brought a tear to my eye. Um, so yeah, um, two seconds. I'm just wondering, there's a beeping noise in here. So let me just bear with yeah, me. go for it. I'm assuming you'll be editing that out <laughs> rather than me just going to check the utility room. <laughs> is, that not, is that coming up on your, can you hear that? Uh, I'm getting a bit of the beeping coming through. I actually don't know what it is. I think it, maybe it's XL. Let me just double check the sheet. Uh, I think it must be next door, strangely, so I don't know how that's coming through here, but there you go. Um, would you like me, I can move to another room, is that, is that better for you, or is it, is it coming through quite faintly? Um, it's, it's a little bit in the background. Um, like I say, it's not a massive oh, thing. I think it literally is next door. Somehow, um, somehow their washing machine is coming through here, I don't know how. 
Um, right. it, might, it may have, I think that was probably the big thing to tell them that it stopped. <laughs> anyway, so they've obviously clicked with their watching. Uh, so um, apologies. Uh, so we'll get to it. Um, so should I just start off again? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, so yeah, I bought the Blu-ray and... Um, you know, I was happy to watch it again, and it brought back some really nice nostalgic memories of that of that period. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's get into it, maybe. Absolutely, I suppose you saying that though. I actually um, bought the, bought the Blu-ray myself for the recording. I just just happened to be in a CEX, uh, which for non-UK listeners, basically where you buy secondhand DVDs, Blu-rays, games, uh, loads of stores around the UK. Um, it just happened to be on a shelf. It was fifty p. Um, so I'm. I'm absolutely not going to say uh, no to a 50p cage Blu-ray. Um, £5.95 I paid. You have been absolutely suckered. <laughs> suckered there. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I think that's that's sort of the, 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 the joy of discovery of the CEX. You never know what's going to end up on the shelves. I mean, yeah. I mean, I see sometimes you see like a few like Arrow films, Criterion films, but... You, I mean, it might just be the CEXs that I've been to because I'm based in Leeds. Um, but the state of like the cases has just been atrocious. Um, I mean, I, I'm not too, I should stress, I'm not like one of these uh, precious uh, physical media collectors. Again, I'm just like, if I see a bargain, I'm a cheap SOB, so I'm going to uh, take you up on it. But um, yeah, I picked up Season of the Witch for 50p. I got Frozen Ground for a pound. Um, did see the other Ghost Rider Spirits of Vengeance. The only reason I didn't pick it up because it's on Amazon Prime at the moment, so I didn't bother with that because um, I'm not a maniac. Um, <laughs> I think I think um, my only issue with the Blu-ray, and I think Blu-rays of the time perhaps, was just that you have to sit through about three trailers right at the start before it let you get to it, which, you know, one of them's for The Fighter. Great film. I really enjoyed it when it came out, but I don't... You know, maybe I'm just being an old man. I just don't have to skip through trailers. I'm not at the cinema. I'm at home in my underwear. Please, just let me have that. Um, <laughs> let me let me get to my Rob Bellman. <laughs> it's like just let me get to Cage. Let me get to Perlman. Just let me get through this 90-minute film. Um, but getting through it, um, I watched it earlier today, just ahead of the recording. Uh, so for me, this was actually the first time I'd seen this film. Um, I sort of remember it being advertised. Um, I think I would have been about 19, 20 when this initially came out. Um, and I think, you know, this is, I think 2011 in general for Cage is a period where he still had some, um, you know, cinematic releases, but we're, we're just tipping onto the precipice of time now where I think, you know, we're just on the cusp of the, uh, the straight-to-DVD video-on-demand era of Cage here as well. So, I mean, in 2011, he still had, as we said, Ghost Rider 2. He had Season of the Witch. He had Drive Angry. We had those cinematic releases. Um, then peppered in there, we've got Seeking Justice. We've got Trespass as well. So, um, yeah, it was there was there was a dark cloud in the cinematic horizon of um, of Nicolas Cage. Um, but it's it's actually made by the guy who who made Gone in sixty seconds. So he, he's followed he's followed a director there who's obviously worked with before and and had quite a big success with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think this director's going anywhere fast. I think this was probably their um, 
And this is probably their last kind of foray into anything, anything major. So it's certainly a cinematic release. Um, yeah. I mean, Gone in 60 seconds was maybe the, maybe kind of ushered in Fast and Furious and maybe it deserves that title and a bit more respect for that because it certainly was of that ilk, but, but for whatever reason, uh, it didn't do too, um, too great for that director. But, it, but he's obviously followed and maybe had a good time making that film, but um, I can't say that it's as thrilling as, as Gone in 60 Seconds, anyway. No, I think, and what films are as brilliant as Gone in 60 Seconds, if we're being completely honest with ourselves? Um, I think there are times though where Cage does um, tend to work with directors again. He doesn't always do um, sequels except for a handful of occasions, like um, again, Ghost Rider, National Treasure, The Croods. Um, but there are some directors that he follows, as you said, Gone in 60 Seconds, which I think deserves a bit more respect than it gets, than perhaps it even got at the time. Um, you know, Fast and Furious can have was it nine films at this point with a two-part part 10 in the works as well yeah another um, spin-off as well so you know it's, it, we're looking at we're looking at almost 13 films now of, from that franchise alone you know, surely you could spare, spare a bit of cash for fast and furious faster and furious faster and furious so, 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 so. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest this and the most furiousness um so i think you know gone in gone in 60 seconds I'm surprised that that film hasn't even been rebooted at this point. It's, I think, you know, with with the um, the penchant of the Hollywood machine to go back and remake and reboot and do this, that, and the other. I am I am honestly surprised that Gone in sixty seconds has been left alone. Um, so it really was. It came and went in sixty seconds, and that was a that was all we had of it. Um, but we've uh, say season of the witch. We've been looking into it um, as well. Um, Speaking of gone on how much of an odd couple has there been? A, an odd couple in Cage history of Nicholas Cage and Angelina Jolie. I can't ever imagine those two together. No, it's 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 a weird couple, and I know. Um, I think I brought it up at the time. I can't remember if it was the uh, the Razzies or a different the Stinkers or something that brought up her. Angelina Jolie was nominated for worst hair. Um, for Gone in 60 Seconds. It did go to John Travolta for Battlefield Earth, if I remember correctly. Oh, I'm um, sure she was devastated. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are worse nominations to have considering the competition. Um, but that actually, those being said, that um, unfortunately Rotten Tomatoes does rear its... Um, I say Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the Razzies, I should say, rears its head here. Uh, Cage got two nominations for the Razzies in 2012 basically collectively for this Drive Angry and Trespass um, he got Worst Actor nomination and he also um, quite cruelly got a, a Worst Screen Couple nomination for him and I quote and anyone who shared the screen with him um, which I think is a little bit cruel I mean that's a bit of a diss to a Ron Perlman um, he would, as you can, as you're probably unsurprised to hear, actually lose out to Adam Sandler in both categories for Jack and Jill in the year when I think Jack and Jill swept the Razzies. Um, the following year, 2013, Adam Sandler would sweep the Razzies again, and I think he made history as only the third person in Razzie history to win the Worst Actor Award in two consecutive years, preceding him with Paulie Shaw and Sylvester Stallone. Um, Wow, well, what what esteemed company? Um, 
brutal. That really is brutal. I'm sure. I'm sure they won't thank you for bringing up those stats. <laughs> I, I, lo- I looked into it for another episode, uh, but, it, but it turns out that between 2007 and 2017, Cage actually received nine Razzie nominations. So I think he he might be one of the most nominated actors for Razzie, who's so never won one. And I, and I think I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I hope it's a bad thing. Um, but when you're you were a Razzie nominated loser, I don't know how that. I no, I, I can't. I can't equate that in my head. Really, that that just doesn't make sense to me. I'm sure he kind of would like to win one just to complete the the kind of set. Um, but uh, I, it, you know, I don't want him to win one. Forget, fuck you, Razzies. You don't deserve him. You don't deserve him on your stage. You don't deserve him even touching your horrible little trophy. So <laughs> go away, move on. Uh, well, that, well, that's it. I think. Um... He's not had one. And I think this is when, you know, I, I can see the Razzies as what they are, like a silly, stupid, tongue-in-cheek thing, taken for what they're worth with a pinch of salt. Um, I think when I officially said, like, you know what, Razzies, and I agree, fuck off, um, was I think it was 2016 or 17 when um, they nominated Cage for Worst Supporting Actor for Snowden. And bearing in mind, if you've seen Snowden, you'll know that Cage has approximately two minutes of screen time, and I cannot stress that enough. And he got a Worst Supporting Actor nomination. And like two minutes of screen time compared to actors who've had hours of screen time. That's when I thought, you know what? I actually think you might have it out for him, and you really want to give him a Razzie. Um, So, you know. I I mean, I've seen that film. I don't remember him doing anything absolutely like how, what would you have to do in two minutes to uh, you'd, you'd have to like just get up and take your pants off and run around when it's supposed to be like a funeral scene or something like what, what has he done wrong in that scene I, I remember it being quite by the numbers yeah I mean Snowden you know was was a fine film and you know Cage I think he only did the film as um to do the director Oliver Stone a favor it's sort of the only mm. reason that he did it um, but again, you know, he, he, he didn't <laughs> he didn't do anything wrong. That's the kind of thing that gets me about it. He did a perfectly serviceable job with what he had for two minutes of time. Um, but there you go, the Razzie's ruining things. For I, I wonder whether they do. Yeah, maybe maybe that conspiracy theory is, has got some weight there. I think they got just got sick of um, you know celebrating Adam Sandler, and and by this point as well, I think it was. Or around this time, Sylvester Stallone had redeemed himself. He had like, because he had worst actor of a generation, worst actor of a decade, or something, and then he got a, a redemption award. So like, well, we can't touch Stallone anymore. He's done the trifecta. Mm. He's gone through the pits and uh, come out clean the other side. So they're still trying to drag Cage with him. Um, but again, I think you know, looking at his performance in this film, um, I thought it was fine. I thought it was a fine performance. I think. Um, Looking at it uh, broadly speaking, I think there may have been uh, it may have been a case of me in terms of the ensemble, sort of uh, too many cooks spoiled the broth kind of thing. I felt there was almost too many characters, so there wasn't really time to focus on anyone who wasn't Cage or Perlman. Um, I think Perlman sort of stands out. I think the thing with Perlman though is he's always, um, in what I've seen him in, least he's always very likable. I think Perlman's such a such a safe pair of hands. And again, I say that with respect. Um, but I suppose, you know, passing it to you, what are your sort of views on, 
I guess the ensemble here and the performances we get in Season of the Witch? Well, certainly with Cage and Pearlman, I think it's very clear that they're acting in two different films. Um, <laughs> it's unusual at times, you know, between edits, between cuts, you've got um, Nick Cage sort of bring a line with kind of like all the, uh, the kind of sincerity of a Shakespeare play, and then it cuts to Pearlman, and he's like, we got to get our asses out of here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you're not, this is no continuity here, what's going on? Um, so, I mean, you know, they exchange jokes together. <laughs> Cage looks like his granddad had just died and Perlman's laughing away. And it's like, oh, I can't, what, have you guys spoken uh, before this, this week <laughs> <laughs> um, about the lines or anything? Um, so, you know, the way those two interact on film is very odd. Um, but at the same time, there is something about that strange relationship together that does work. They have a lot of, they spend a lot of time reminiscing together in this film. Um, a huge amount of time just talking about um, days combust and it sounds like they've had great lives together. Um, so, you know, they, 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 they pull that off. I, I think anyone's performance kind of thought, you know, maybe the, the dreariness of anyone else's performance kind of fades when Stephen Graham comes on screen and um, I'm a fan of Stephen Graham he's a fellow scouter I, I love what he does and I think he's absolutely fantastic in almost everything that he does but when he's bad mm. he is bad <laughs> and for, what, for whatever reason they're apparently in somewhere in you know it's not actually specified somewhere in Europe when they're filming in Budapest he's dropped the scouse accent and he's gone for some sort of New York Bronx accent, um, <laughs> yeah. which makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, he's not in it for very long, thank goodness. Um, he is a scouser, so obviously you must cast him as uh, the criminal, uh, the cheeky mm -hmm. criminal who's of trying course. to um, to uh, do you over. Uh, but he's particularly awful in this movie. Um, but Cage's Paul, going back to Cage's performance, I think there's some I think there's some really nice moments from him actually. I think there's some good um sincere moments. I think him and Claire Foy, given the material, I think actually could have done something really nice and quite sweet because the the um the relationship they've got together, not to jump ahead, but the relationship they've got together is a really nice unusual father daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. I feel like if they had the dialogue and they had the director. I assume that could have gone somewhere really quite interesting. Um, yeah. But I, but, I, but I don't think it quite reaches out those heights. Um, Claire Foy is excellent with, again, what little she has. She, she's, she's, a, she's an excellent actress, and I think um, she goes on to prove that in it later on in her career. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, like you say, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of characters in this film, and uh, giving them all the time that they need to kind of breathe it's probably not going to happen in a in an under 90 minute movie so yeah yeah definitely agree with um a, a lot of that i mean again touched on stephen graham i think for me he's i think he's one of maybe the finest actors in the world if i'm gonna you know push that boat out there certainly one of if not the best the uk has had in a very long time um because as you said um he's always usually so excellent in everything and I find any time that I see him on screen, I'm like, hey, it's Stephen Graham. I'm always really excited to see him. I didn't realise he was in this. Then he first you see him in the stocks because um, I think they've said he's he's the town thief or something. Um, but he also happens to know 
the the six day route to the monastery they're trying to get to as well. Um, and like I said, it's a strange New York accent that he's got there. Um, I think there was one point where he said "bitch," and I think a bit of Scouse eked out of him. Um, again, I mean, I, I won't claim to assume. I don't know if um, being from Liverpool, putting an American accent and saying particularly that word "bitch" is like it's a hard one to nail down. Um, I won't make that assumption. Um, I don't. I don't. I can't. I've never tried to say it in a different accent. I'm, I'm really not sure, but um, and I'm not going to force I, you to perform for an American, <laughs> an American accent right now. If you give, if you if you told me before the show that I'd have to do that, I would have gone upstairs and said it in the mirror a couple of times. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, impromptu is not my thing. Uh, yeah, it definitely. There's there are moments when it eeks out, but, but the rest of the time he's doing this very strange faux New York accent, which which he nails in in the Irishman and. Um, I think he he played Al Capone in um, was it Boardwalk Empire? He played Al Capone. Yeah. And he's absolutely he's fantastic in it. He's just got this kind of like he's a boiling part of of fury and rage and um, uh, just just like so many emotions within that. I think he showed that in in uh, This Is England. Uh, but he doesn't really get that kind of range in this film. It, you know, it's it, it's a Hollywood production production that's just added to just wants to add a bit of kind of colour to the to the cast and. Maybe you can say he was successful at that. Yeah, um, I think he, you know, underutilized. This is what I mean, though. I think you know, outside of Cage and Perlman, and even Claire Foy, who plays um, the girl or Anna, as she's named right at the end of the film. Um, I do wish that we'd had more time with with Anna, with Claire Foy. Um, I believe this was her cinematic debut. She'd done some TV before, but this is the first film that she'd done. Um, obviously, she's a, a fantastic um, actress as well as in her own right, who goes on to prove that tenfold in the, the works following this. Um, but I just think a lot of the supporting cast aren't given a great deal to do. Um, Claire Foy especially. I do wish that we'd had some more scenes between her um, and maybe even the rest of the ensemble, if there was more time for them to interact and just see what we'd get from those. Um, we get the bits and pieces of Cage, you know, we get the idea that his character, um, Bayham, is, um, you know, there's almost that kind of fatherly bond there. When they get put in the dungeons at the start, you know, he says, that's supposed to be the witch, well, that's not what I see. So you sort of, you know, know he's got a good soul in there. But I think she's she does okay with what she's given. Um, I just think considering that the film, well, the plot of the film at least, or it's written to make you believe it hinges so much on the the, the who, what, why of this girl. Um, but I think it just tries to pad it out with too much stuff around it. Um, that it just becomes, it weakens it a bit. Um, and I think especially by the big climax and the big fight in the monastery as well, which we'll sort of get onto as well. Um, it's kind of just lost a lot of interest by the time it gets there for me. Um, yeah. Even with uh, uh, Robert Sheehan that we've got in this, who plays um, Kai, who's an altar boy, wishes to become a knight. Uh, Kai von Wollenbach. Um, I think. <laughs> is that his full name? Kai von Wollenbach. Uh, according to the credits, that's his full name, <laughs> Kai von Wollenbach. Well, that is a very authentic med- medieval name. I've heard of many medieval knights who are, quite, who are called Wollenbach. I prefer a cotton bath for myself or a satin bath, even, but uh, a woolen bath sounds like a radox. 
Redox paper, isn't it? <laughs> very, very soft on the skin, you know, really, yeah, yeah. really, you know, scrub down them pores with a woolen bath. Um, <laughs> that sounds very upper class. It's like, mother, can you run me a woolen bath? Um, so Not I'll, in this house, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have maids, Kai. Um, that's, that's what that screams to me. But I think even with Robert Sheehan, we, I think I could be wrong. I feel like this is one of his, his big sort of cinematic. Uh, films, I think, post Misfits um, on Channel Four, which I think obviously he was like far and away the star of that. And then I think Hollywood were just trying to eat him up because he never did the onwards seasons of those. But even that, he's he's here. He gets a bit more screen time. He gets a bit more development. I think on the basis of that, he's the only survivor. Spoilers. Um, but he gets a fight scene with Ron Perlman. He gets a bit of interaction with the other characters. But again, I just think it's like I said, endemic of everyone else. That's not Cage or Perlman. I just wish we had a bit more time. It's like they they tried to cram too much into 90 minutes, but in what they had in the 90 minutes, it just got padded in um, journeying or chasing yeah. is what I felt. And before we even get on to kind of like the main narrative we have a whole i don't know how long it was but i felt about half an hour a, a lonely planet's guide to um the crusades where we were literally bouncing <laughs> around battles for what seems like two hours where we yeah we were seeing multiple battles of, of cage and pelman or at least the stunt doubles uh um fighting in these battles uh it, it goes on too long it doesn't really need to be there um, I think we get the, the idea out of two and three, but when it gets to five or six of these montages, it, it does it tend to get a, a, a drags a little bit. Mentioning like people who are underused, I, I must say that I really, really enjoyed the performance of Ulrich Thompson. Um, I don't know him, you know, from other films or TV, um, but Eckhart, the character of Eckhart, I thought he's probably one of the most interesting characters in the film. Mm-hmm. Didn't really get a chance to breathe, but but what he had such sincerity in the way that he played that character that maybe was maybe misplaced in season of the witch but you know he, he's this knight who's lost his his daughters his, his wife from the plague and comes on on this journey and kind of gets pulled in by the witch and, and can see a lot of his daughter in that and it's actually quite a sad story and he plays it with um, like like i say so much sincerity um it's a shame that he kind of you know, they killed him off fairly fairly early and somehow ran into a sword. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how that happened. Kai, Kai blames it on him, on Eckhart. I'm like, you're the one pointing the sword into the man's chest. Like, he was just <laughs> running at me. <laughs> Put your sword up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, I, I think he... Um, I think it's assumed to be um, I think a power of the witch running through mm. these caves to find like a an open grave um which even then the open grave they make a, a thing out of it but they don't really explore it i assume it's just where they put plague bodies uh, and then he sees the vision of his daughter but again i think like as you said you know he's one of the supporting characters we get that sort of like emotional seed or that there's something more to this character um and then he's very unceremoniously run through with a blade and um oft I think about uh, maybe 40, 45 minutes into the film or something. So it's kind of a, just a shame, a shame um, because you think there's going to be more. I mean, 
certainly right at the start of the film as well. It's like a blink and you'll miss in performance. Uh, Rory McCann, aka the Hound from Game of Thrones, is there um, for about a minute of screen time. Blink and you'll miss it. Um, yeah. I mean, just because at the very start of the film, and this is obviously the, the pre-Crusades montage that we get, um, there, there's a, a, a hanging three women accused for witchcraft. Um, he's a soldier there overseeing it. So I thought he was going to come into play a bit more because the the uh, the priest he said, we've got to get these women out of the water. Or we've got, I've got to perform the um, the ritual, otherwise they'll, they'll come back. And then he's like, um, like, yeah, I don't give a shit. And then he just sort of like walks off and then that's how the, the witches start. So it felt... Yeah, it was, it was literally in it for that cold open. Um, you get the cold open, you introduce to the witches, the world... And then he doesn't come back, and you feel like there's a there's a version of the script somewhere that he has a much bigger role. Because I think even then he was he was getting um, cinematic releases, I think, and then obviously cast as a hound in Game of Thrones, and you know went on to much bigger things. But it was strange to not see him again. I did think that he would be somewhere, maybe in the town that um, Bayman and is it Belson. Um, visit uh, and meet the witch. I thought maybe he might be the, the kind of sheriff there or, or what have you, but, but he doesn't appear again, which is very odd. Um, I think the one thing that we haven't mentioned at the moment is is Christopher Lee. Um, of course. The master um, appears on screen opposite opposite Cage and, you know, wow, what a matchup that would be. You kind of, you, you, if you say that on paper, Christopher Lee and, and, and Nick Cage on the same screen together, you kind of be salvating it's, it's, it's amazing um but unfortunately again like uh uh like what is it robert mccann did you say rory, rory mccann it doesn't last yeah. very very long does it? it's, it's it's a very much it's maybe a minute or two of dialogue and then and then he passes away unfortunately yeah we don't get a lot of christopher lee it's always um heavily made up um sort of in the throes of um the Black Death himself, he's got like a very sort of um, bulbous forehead, like his, his uh, top lip is uh, almost clefted, um, almost mm-hmm. just, you just see all of his teeth, his eyes are barely open. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a significant role in the in the context of the film. He is um, uh, the gentleman who sets um, Cage and Perlman on the mission uh, to escort the girl to the monastery, um, uh, the idea is that the, the elite group of monks there will uh, basically cast their the rituals, their spells to um, try and see if she's a witch or not. Um, eventually, Cage and Perm come round. They'll say it's, it's a very sudden come round. I think they've just seen her crying in the dungeons. They're like, you know what? We'll do it. Because um, I think from the, the montage we get, the reason they leave the Crusades is because after the fifth or sixth battle they have of slaying people, they then notice the bodies and like, actually, no, no, right. I think it took about six wars, um, which is, you know, it, it, like you said, it just makes all the, all the crusades at the start very um, unnecessary. Like, I think, I, I think you get it. You get it. it yeah, it, I think we get that, that definitely, yeah. I mean, it is a story of a, a retribution for for Cage's character, Damon, isn't it? It's a, it's that idea that he's done something terrible, and the thing that triggers that in his head is that he, he accidentally kills this woman, this innocent woman, that gets him questioned the, the kind of m- meaning of the war and 
and his crusades and his dedication to God. So it's there are different there are there are deeper elements at play. Again, we don't ever really kind of see any end game to that. Um, I would really have liked to explore that a little bit more and kind of that idea of retribution and and whether it's possible to come back from from doing something like that and from and from killing for a living. Uh, he doesn't get to explore a huge one. And in fact, he, he flip-flops between feeling kind of this this connection with the witch, with Anna, um, and, and really wanting to help her, and then, and then deciding, actually, no, she is a witch, and she deserves to die. And it just feels muddled, uh, and the intentions of that character feel muddled. And I really would have liked to have seen something in the end to say, you know, it's implied that he got that retribution and, 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 he, and he has that forgiveness. Um, but, but there are deeper questions at hand there and I think religion is, is a big theme in this film and, and Bateman is incredibly uh, cynical about Christianity and vocally cynical about Christianity in this film. And it did, it did get me wondering whether Cage, you know, what, what Cage's position on that is. I don't remember him having particularly pro religious ideals uh, in many of his roles um, and whether he is a bit of a cynic and kind of underplays that a little bit I'm not too sure um, and the film certainly doesn't get a chance to explore that anymore and if that's what he wanted to do and that was the purpose of him taking this role I don't think he got that point across. Completely agree I think the outside I don't recall him having particularly strong religious views outside of cinema any one way or the other I think in a lot of things um from a religious perspective politically as well he does tend to keep himself to himself on all of that I think the most religious film he's done um is left behind a few years later but that's only because he's brother convinced him to do it and because his brother's a priest um but that's just because he's such a good family man that he'll uh take a hit for the team as it were um well I think that definitely the pagan I, I, I would imagine he has he has quite strong pagan views and I think the wicker man he was drawn to the wicker man because of that um and, and because of the the kind of spiritual um concepts within the wicker man I know maybe that didn't come across in the film but it does lead me to wonder whether they whether Christopher Lee and, and Nick Cage had a conversation about the wicker man and, and kind of discuss what they had in common and uh, uh, what what Christopher Lee thought he yeah. did well in that film and you know I would be fascinated to get an idea of whether Christopher Lee was like what were you thinking you know, why did you remake it why did you remake that <laughs> or whether he was quite whether he was quite um uh complimentary I'm I'm not too sure yeah I mean I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation and just see what uh what was discussed there um, I mean, he did. He did say in an interview that one of his interests in the role, um, he said, "I wanted to make movies that celebrated actors like Christopher Lee and Vincent Price and the great Roger Corman classics that are unafraid to explore the paranormal and the supernatural." Um, but like you say, there, I think you know, a, a very heavy religious context to this film. A lot of more um, pressing questions about morality and redemption they could have asked that they shied away from. I think to try and focus on a more action-based ensemble um, perspective with everything. But I think if, if The Wicker Man is a lesson in anything, is that anytime you try to do a serious film or religious film and it doesn't come through, you have to say it's a comedy. Um, that's the only way to redeem these things, um, which which I think a lot of the, the reviews that I've read for this seem to, you know, um, 
obviously for the 11% of Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of reviews didn't get on with it. The consensus was a slow, cheap-looking and dull season of The Witch fails even as an unintentional comedy. Um, I mean, you know, I sort of had that in mind going into it, but even then I I think there were one or two scenes that I, I did chuckle at a little bit. I think it was unintentional um, response, um, but I don't know that I really got comedy from it, even if they were looking at it like, well, you've, you've not done this, but now it's come across as that. I didn't really get comedy from it. I don't know if any of that came through to you either. No, I think like you, there are certainly a couple of unintentional scenes that I definitely laughed at. And there's a moment with um, about sedating somebody for a long journey and they, they kind of drugged her food and it didn't work. So Nick Cage just, just hammers her on the back of the head <laughs> with his fist and she goes out like a light. Certainly not how I would like to be sedated before a long flight. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know he has a couple of uh, cage rage moments, um, but no, they they have banter back and forth. It's not particularly funny. It's poorly written. You know, it's it's not great. Cage has that line about uh, women. I've seen women destroy men without lifting a finger. I think is that surely that's not a line comedic purposes I don't know I, I no I don't think I'm not I'm not buying that but I'm also not buying the review in saying that it you know it, it doesn't succeed as a as a as an adventure I think that it's it's fun I can spend I can think of less way um um less interesting way to spend 90 minutes certainly than, than going through this so yeah uh I, I, I'm more than I, I'm not going along with the fact that it's a comedy. It, it, this is done. This is an adventure, and it's kind of hand on heart adventure as well. Yeah, again, agreed there. I mean, it looks like um, the film did have a number of uh, uh, reshoots. It looked like uh, Brett Ratner was brought on at one point for extensive reshoots. He wasn't credited for it. Um, I think that's a reshoot a number of fight scenes as well. Um, there was, I think, a point that some of the uh, the test screenings didn't do too well with. I think it might have been Lionsgate, so there's a number of reshoots also there. Um, I mean, I, I, I felt that the film was you know, shot fairly well. I think there were some editing choices that were a bit I didn't quite agree with. I think the one, the main editing one for me was when um, uh, Kai and uh, Felson have their they're basically that dick swinging sword fight at the start. Like, well, he called me this name. Well, he called me that name. Let's have a sword fight because that's what you do in the 14th century. But um, there was just a lot of like, just cut, 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 cut. And I was like, okay, right, hang on a second. Can I just just give you like two seconds just to look at a shot here? Um, so I think some bits were a bit overly energetic when they didn't necessarily need to be. Um, but other than that, I, know, I didn't have a huge issue with it the cinematography of it um i think just no, and i think a lot of it was shot on on location in budapest and i think that actually mm. some of the photography in it is, is pretty nice but and you know there's some nice establishing shots and uh, i kind of buy a buy where they are i kind of think you know it's completely believable that they're in the, the these kind of barren wastelands of, of budapest in the middle of winter um so I think that they do a good job with that. You completely bang on about the editing, especially in that fight scene. It's, it's all over the place, and, and Kai's jumping like a jackrabbit to know what's going on. I think I've, I think I've just stolen Felton's line there. I think he does actually say jumping, jumping like a jackrabbit, which is uh, 
I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I've stolen <laughs> one of Ron Perlman's lines. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I've stolen a number of cage lines in my own life, so I wouldn't worry about it. Um, I think, I think you know, on, on that note, I think going back to some of the, um, I guess, unintentional comedy, I think th- there was two that stood out for me. One was the um, the whole rickety bridge sequence um, where they're like, you might know, oh, I don't trust that bridge. And then suddenly Cage is halfway across the bridge with his horse. I was like, hang on a minute. You're literally, what, <laughs> what are you playing at? And then- The to the sorcerer, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure if the sorcerer fans will be absolutely loving that. They'd go and watch Steve Lando, it's just for that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's magnificent, what a magnificent scene. Yeah, he just, he just jumps on there and they're all assessing the situation and he's straight on there with his horse. Yeah, he's straight on like, As long as I've got my horse across, whatever else happens is just a bonus, to be honest. Um, and it's then it's the part where they're figuring out basically the way to get um, the, the the transport, the cage for um, Anna across, because obviously they're not going to let her out. She's already, I think she's already done one runner at this point, um, and she'd stabs the, the priest in the hand with the key or the cross or whatever it was. And um, it is, uh, I think it's Kai... Uh, the priest whose name is um, uh, Diebel, Diebel Zap, I think, or something like that. Diebel Zap, I think his name is um, a weird, weird medieval name. And Perlman, they're using that rope to try and like counter the weight. But it's then obviously um, they let go of the rope because they can't hold it. And Perlman is just dragged across the ground for like just an unnecessarily long period of time, um, like some kind of like 2000s family comedy with the cranks or something uh, which i've really enjoyed and then the other one was at the end in the in the um sort of i guess the big climatic end when they've got to the monastery um and they found that all the monks have died of the black death um and then they're all getting possessed by tiny little demons crawling into their mouths and the priests are like the monks are crawling oh, I love that scene. oh yeah that's a good scene like that. <laughs> the, the, the cgi monks are crawling up the like scurrying up the ceiling and i was like oh god what is this um so i i enjoyed that uh that's that's um thrilled me no end um oh that's wonderful well as soon as they started going into their mouths and i thought if these monks are going to come alive it's fantastic film. This is a fantastic film. It's changed my mind. Uh, and they did come alive. <laughs> they did come alive and they caused some havoc. And, you know, they were hideous. And some of the makeup was fantastic. They looked really, really, really grim. Um, yeah, Perlman, he definitely had a couple of moments where I did have a little giggle. He likes to headbutt in this film. And uh, I think earlier on in yeah. the Crusades, he headbutts a guy who's, who's completely covered in a, a steel helmet and he headbutts this guy to death with his own uncovered head. And uh, later on, he kind of, it, it was, I think it's the only film that I've ever seen a Chekhov's gun with help, with like headbutting. Uh, <laughs> they, they foreshadow his headbutting a demon with headbutting a man in full suit of armor uh, in the first scene, which I think is absolutely magnificent and uh, sublime storytelling. Uh, I think they're not the very good. They're not very good at the jobs, are they really? It does make me think that they, they transport their job. The whole purpose of this is that they're two very experienced knights um, and an experienced priest and another um, person who's supposed to be the best knight in the town. And they're, they're transporting this one woman to, you know, a, a monastery a couple of days away. And it takes them like four hours for her to first escape. <laughs> and then she then escapes, I think, like another two times or something. And it's like, 
you really and I think that first night they say we should probably keep watch and Rob Perlman's like no I'm tired <laughs> I'm not doing that I was like, this is your job yeah per- Perlman he, he turns over and says he's tired I think Stephen Graham's character he just immediately pulls his hood down over his face he's like no, I'm not doing it um so it no, doesn't take a long to escape, but I think as we said, all that that whole escape is just padding for her to run into a town to fill like five minutes for Eckhart to be cruelly killed off. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose that's the whole thing, though. In this, what I, I guess it comes to uh, the t- the twist. I say, for lack of a better term, when we find out the girl's not actually a witch, but is possessed by a demon, um, which I mean. I, I guess fine you know it's it's a demon we get that supernatural element to it at the end there but I suppose that the um for me at least the twist kind of fell really flat because I suppose the one if maybe there'd been or hints that maybe there's something more going here on here that was what, than what we're seeing but it, throughout the film it's like no you might be a witch the things that you're doing you know like making Eckhart see his daughter um, summoning these like demon werewolves werewolves demon wolves I should say um, you know I was, I was thinking well I guess these are things that I would expect a witch to reasonably be able to accomplish but then suddenly they're doing the ritual and it's like wait a minute this is not a witch this is a demon and like you know we've got 10 minutes left of the film and it's like I've not been I've not been led along the path to expect the demon twist at the end. So at the end, it was like, well, mm. yeah, 10 minutes left, demon, why not? Sure. You do have to wonder what her plan is all along because she doesn't really make much of an effort to conceal the fact that she's something else, you know, whether that's witch or demon or whatever. She doesn't really make much of an effort to, to conceal that. Um, and I think really she could have played on that and the film could have played on that more and kind of allowed the audience to connect with her character a little bit more. I think we get maybe the first time we meet her, she uh, accuses the priest of, of torturing her to get a confession out of her. Mm-hmm. But then following that, I think at the very next scene, she's she's doing something which is obviously either manipulative or using witchcraft. And yeah. then uh, and then from then on, you, you just know, you just know she's evil. And I feel like, well, that, that is, again, a bit of a missed opportunity to really play around with the, the audience's emotions here and, and, and allow that conflict to, to go unresolved into, into the final third of the movie, even. Um, but they resolved that very, very early on. And I guess the writers are probably thinking, well, we have this whole devil ace in the pack that's going to shock audiences. But I think by that point, we probably don't care that much. I'm really... Um, Claire Foy's character's kind of kind of been written off, and she is good in this film. And she she switches on a dime, and you know she's looking at you with those with those big eyes and pleading. Uh, you know, and a second later, she's changed that into a very kind of um, like I say, manipulative, evil um, character. And I, and I think not many people can do that, especially with just kind of like twitch of a facial expression and I think she's excellent at that and I feel like if we just had a couple of more exchanges a couple of more seeds of doubt that she wasn't you know that, that she wasn't um completely evil and she was just this girl who's been who's been um misjudged then I think it would have been a lot more successful but the film just doesn't let you 
doesn't let you do that. It's too interesting, kind of mm-hmm. taking you on this journey, which, which by the way, is the most unconvincing six days since since 28 days later. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I counted, pos- if I'm generous, three nights. Um, <laughs> and, you know, 28 days later, it takes something like six weeks to get to Manchester from London. But in this one, you know, they're, they're speeding up time. So it's a bit of a... I think we need to get Google Maps going because it's not quite accurate. <laughs> well, Killian Murphy clearly didn't have a horse um, to, make, <laughs> to make that journey. Again, the, I, com- I completely agree. I think if they'd um, been able to play on, I guess almost if they sort of borrowed something, say from like um, the thing, I guess to, to pull a movie from from my head here on on the mistrust element of that, you know, um, planting the seeds of doubt. You know, we don't know who. The witch she's talking to, who she's getting in the heads of, but and I think, I guess you know it's not necessarily a bad thing, not great for the film, but mm-hmm. you know, the ensemble cast, like the Cage Five, they're pretty much on the same wavelength for the entire film. There's very rarely any tension between the group of guys. Um, I guess we get Stephen Graham's character who um, tries to kill her with a crossbow at one point. He's just like. Well, if we kill her, no one will know. We can just go home. But they stop him, and then they're like, "The quickly the status quo is restored." I suppose wolves then do quickly turn up and rip him to shreds. Um, goodbye, Stephen Graham. Um, but there's just, like I said, the, the the film just, even with the questions of religion and you know redemption, um, you know what is going on with um, the Claire Foy character, it has the potential of some really good questions to explore, but. The film just ultimately um, is more interested in when Ron Perlman will deliver his next headbutt, um, mm. which which turns out to be to um, the big bad demon at the end. But he gets a nice hug and he's burnt to a crisp for his efforts, <laughs> <laughs> for his efforts yeah. as well. Um, it, it certainly feels like they're, they're stuck between two minds here about what do we go with? Where are we going for Hugh Jackman Van Helsing or? something a little bit deeper uh, you know the thing is an excellent comparison where you just think there's more success there if they do allow that group to kind of have conflict turn on each other become paranoid um allow the witch to kind of not be so aware with her with her witchcraft and maybe just slip in seeds of doubt to the group and let them take each other up, apart from the inside but but it doesn't do that at all it's not it's not intelligent enough to, to go that route you know, there's a film. I don't. I don't know if it's critically well received. I don't think it is. But there's a film called Black Death, um, with Sean Bean and, and Eddie, uh, Eddie Redmayne, um, which which does a much better job of uh, producing this um, answer to the Black Death through witchcraft, uh, allowing those characters to kind of seek an end to, to the pest, pestilence that's, that's coming across the land. Um, and those ideas of religion uh, and, you know, are we to blame for the things that happen to us and the negative things that, have, you know, happen to our culture and our society? Are we feeling some sort of um, uh, justice for the bad things that we've done? And that, that deals with that a lot better. I feel like there are there are seeds of an idea in this film and none of them are get fully explored. Instead, we're left with something which is a bit of amalgamation of a of a CGI action romp and, and, and something else that maybe Nick Cage thinks this is, um, but it doesn't materialise. 
and it's a real shame. I, I would I would have loved to have seen more of Claire Foy. I would have loved to have seen more of the paranoia. Um, but it wasn't to be. But I still enjoy what's left. Um, because because the action bots are good, and you do get that monk fight scene at the end that you spoke about, and I think it works that, that works really well. You get a nice death for for Felsen, um, but uh, but it's an opportunity missed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's you you can't come away with it. I think without feeling, uh, I mean, maybe a little deflated because of all the potential of the film had and could have had but didn't capitalize upon um i mean i think the action scene at the end i think it was fine it was perfectly serviceable um i think as we sort of touched upon earlier i think like the makeup like the the uh, the black death up monks they're all like black and purple and bulbous and lumpy and all horrible to look at i thought that was really good um i think that's something to easily underappreciate if you're not looking for it um i kind of liked for, for just weird reasons that whenever their heads were cut off they just dissipated into just wisps of like vapor and just dropped around and you know we get a nice little poem online like the like gaga roaches um because Perlman had to sass them whilst he was there um but i think it just goes almost full game of thrones at this point just determined to kill off all the characters uh Perlman gets burnt to a crisp um uh, the uh the priest uh diesel zach i think his name is um i was gonna call him like big Diebel. um he gets his next stats <laughs> 180 he is dispatched and taken out and i suppose actually looking at his character um i guess just briefly as well the way the film kind of i guess my reading of his character at the start was that there was going to be more to him he like he was going to be like you know he's the priest he's the closest to god he's the guy who's going to be maybe he was going to be sowing some seeds of doubt in the other character's mind as well which i guess he kind of does but he ultimately just like quietly just 180 flips and he's just entirely redemptive at the end and he's completely on board with the mission even though he's reluctant um to get on board with it so i was like and even with the uh demon at the end that is they tried to give him um or her or it's I, i'm not on me to gender a demon uh but they tried to give the demon some quick backstory uh because obviously they find the key of solomon which is the book full of rituals for all this kind of business and he says like do you have any idea that book has been tormenting me how long for and i'm just kind of like well, no, because you've literally just turned up. I don't know anything about you, but then the film's told me that you're evil. I don't know what your motivation is at all. Um, he could be he could be a lovely demon that wants to just, you know, cure all these people of their horrible skin conditions. He yeah. could be the, the demon of, uh, I was going to say death all then, but isn't that sink cleaning? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> could be a very hygienic demon who just wants to um, rid the world of the Black Death. We'll never know. Yeah. Um, because he gets exercised to fuck, uh, but unfortunately. Um, but what you were saying there about Cage's death being good, I feel like it might be one of the better ones. I suppose for context, the priest has been killed, he's had his neck snapped. Uh, Kai is sort of, you know, trying to tear through the rest of the ritual as quickly as he can. Cage is holding this demon back, but like the spiked bit of his wings are just like jabbing into his back, just like stab, stab, stab. So um, a huge sacrifice. Um, I suppose this is, I guess, the film's way of his atonement for killing the girl at the start, that he's saved the girl at the end. I think the only thing that did make me laugh, though, was when he was sort of sat down on the, the pillar, and then it's that classic thing in films when someone dies, their head silly just rocks backwards, and he just, like, hit the pillar um, really mm. quick. I, I, Not I, before he exchanged a very meaningful look with 
with Anna um, after she'd been exercised. Um, she's completely naked for reasons unknown. Um, uh, she lifts her head and she she exchanges a very solemn look with Cage. You know, I don't think she has any idea. Well, she she states later on that she doesn't remember a thing, so I'm not sure how she would really understand who that is or have con any context as to why this guy is dying um, right next to her. I, but it does it does emphasize my point earlier on about how it, how it's a bit of an interesting choice to go for that father daughter relationship. I think it would have been very easy to to kind of like stumble along into some sort of romantic relationship between the two but mm -hmm. thankfully they shied away from that and you know it's, it's fair for it probably uh, but yeah an, an excellent death I really like that I really like that um the demon kind of stabbing him over and over and over again he still remains like firm standing up and pinning him to the to the pillar uh, I, I thought that was a, a very heroic ending to Bayman honestly yeah, I think it was a dignified death, a noble death. I did notice, though, um, I think he must have got it during the battle with the demon. Um, he had that cut over his left eye, the character did. And I think this sort of um, speaks into something about the time, how Cage was very into supernatural films at the time, if you just look at his um, his, his works around this uh, time period. And in this film, he really wanted to have a scene where his character's eye was taken out, but they wouldn't let him do it. I think they wanted to keep it at a certain rating, so eventually, though, he would get that in the next film, Drive Angry. He would get his eyes shot out in that film. So there was a period of time where to take a role, you know, irrespective of what he says in interviews, he really wanted to be maimed and disfigured. Um, and he was gagging for it in this film. Didn't quite get it, but he wouldn't have to wait for too long. So that makes me think they compromised <laughs> and just gave him some makeup and like, just imagine that your eye's out. I think, <laughs> I think it's just implied at the end that his, um, his eye his eye is out there he kind of went off in a strut he was like they'll only give me a scratch <laughs> uh, yeah a very big hollywood tantrum but um he, yeah. he knows when to have them um i think i think that my only issue with the ending and i, I don't know if he felt this way if he felt differently um obviously as he said anna naked for reasons unknown because <clears throat> this is my only answer to that why um, everyone's buried at the end, and at the end, it's um, you know, Cage's character tells Kai to um, look after Anna and keep her safe. And as they're sort of over the graves, um, you know, Anna's asking Kai to sort of tell her about all the group of people that saved her, um, so that she can go and say their well, tell their stories because basically otherwise it would just be written off as well plague is as plague does um, plague's gonna plague um i think my only concern with that was like you know obviously anna had no memory of it she was captive to a demon she was just trapped inside her own body but you'd think if you look at i guess intensely at the period of the time the 14th century if you return from you know this mission with just like an altar boy and a woman who has been uh, accused of witchcraft for a number of you know for a number of years i think they said the plague has been raging for three years in a season and then you return and say um oh i'm fine now but i'm the one that's going to tell the story i just think a 14th century woman accused of witchcraft trying to tell people what happened i just don't think that's going to go well and i have a feeling that anna was killed shortly afterwards um <laughs> i don't know if if uh maybe that's me looking too much into it or if or what your thoughts were in general, I should say, on the ending and how we, how we'd leave things in Season of the Witch. 
Uh, she's certainly going to die after immediately after those credits roll. As soon as she, as soon as she hits civilization, she's going to get drowned or burned, or both. Um, yeah, I mean, really, they all die, and I feel like this plague probably should have killed them up a lot earlier. They don't seem to be taking many precautions uh, regarding the plague. I think. Uh, Perlman's character dips his face in the grave water at one point and, and still none of them contract this deadly illness. But, you know, Cage was always destined to get that heroic death and he did certainly get that and, and she's, she's vowed to carry on their story. I think it was always going to go this way. I don't think it's particularly original um, uh, or believable in this time period. Mm-hmm. I think... There might have been a temptation there to have a bit of a wink and a nod with Anna and kind of suggest that she hasn't actually been exercised. I think that might have been a little bit more interesting to me, um, perhaps, that um, the devil still exists. He's still strong. Um, I don't know. I would just would have liked to have seen a bit more of a nihilistic ending to this film. Uh, And perhaps, you know, more of a the mist style ending where you know all is lost and this land doesn't actually deserve to be saved and these people don't deserve to be uh, to come out of the plague um and the end of the world is is nigh i think that would have been a much more effective ending and one that um would make the film generally more memorable um mm-hmm. and give uh claire foy that a little bit more uh to do perhaps um I'm almost seeing an omen style ending where she kind of rises to power. Um, but instead, we kind of just get this voiceover, which is uh, it kind of reminds me of Dragonheart or something like that, a period where she just kind of has this very somber tale about how these knights were lovely and, you know, tell me all about them. Right, well, there's not much to tell. He only knew them for three days and it was a very quick three days. So, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't worry about that. If you can just watch the six battles that they were involved in in over two hours, then you'll know what you need to know about um, Damon and Felsen. But, uh, yeah, it was the ending we got, and it's probably the ending that the film deserved, uh, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) It it does leave me kind of wanting... I'm thinking about Nicolas Cage in terms of genre and and horror as well. I'm wondering are we actually going to get a film from him which which is almost a straight-up horror film? I feel like this one, in his, heart, in his eyes, and, you know, you read the quote earlier on, was more of, like, a something that uh, pays a lot to Hammer Horror. He, you know, he's obviously done this uh, psychological, um, drug-fueled horror in Mandy and Willie's Wonderland and, and all of the more recent kind of pieces of work but nothing that I would actually say has been scary um I'm a massive horror fan you know that, that's kind of part of what I do and what I love is horror and I, I don't think I think the, the role that probably scared me, the film that probably scared me most is is Wild at Heart and you know I mean, David Lynch always treads that line between the horrific and the fantastical very, very well, uh, you know, with Willem Dafoe's character, and that's certainly on the, the more horrific side for me. But no, I'd love to see him work with, with someone like Ari Aster or, or Robert Eggers and give us something which is which is just that 
don't know, has, has a real depth and, and celebration of the genre. Um, allows him to, to give more of a straight performance. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, just, just really like flexors muscles as well. You know, you, you've seen that like Tony Collette in Hereditary, um, Florence Pugh in, in Midsummer. Those are two that really stand out to me in recent years. And I feel like he's he's built for that kind of performance. So I'd love to see him in something which is truly meant to terrify. I don't think we've had that yet from him. Uh, and that's mm. one, you know, he's been in many genres. Uh, you know, he's kind of dipped his toe into every genre that exists. But to my mind, I just can't think of something like that. You know, he's attempted some with Pay the Ghost, films like Pay the Ghost, which are, you know, a bit... They're not exceptional films. Um, so I would just like to see him be with someone who is an established and um, noteworthy horror director. And let's, let's see where that goes. Absolutely. I, I know that Cage, I think, is definitely appreciative of and a fan of horror. Obviously, he said he's dipped his toe. We've had Willy's Wonderland, Mandy, Pay the Ghost. I mean, you know, not really, I guess, full, full horror films in the way that we would anticipate. Um, more of like I guess genre mix-ups in some respects or respects I should say I mean Season of the Witch I think maybe would have been better if it went tried to lean more into maybe like a medieval horror Um, I just think as we've been saying you know this one um, there's just a lot of things it could have done differently it's set up a lot of interesting questions um, but after a while it just seems like it just tired of itself. It just got tired of the witch plot. It says, let's just throw some more CGI in here. Let's have another action scene there. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the characters try to do the best that they can do with what they're given, the actors. Um, I think probably could have been done with just less padding, just more plot, maybe more conversation. Let us get to know the characters a bit more. Um, but like I say, I don't think it's the unintentional comedy many critics have painted it as. I think it's 11%, you know, say what you will about that. I think some critics have been a bit unduly harsh on it. Um, and I think it's, you know, people saying, oh, it's Monty Python-esque. Is it, is it really? I don't think it is. I saw one critical review saying that, um, and again, I'm just paraphrasing here, um, Cage is effective as a falling down drunk in Las Vegas or treasure hunter navigating goofy road trips, but not as a disillusioned champion of the church Steven Seagal would have been more believable. Now, first of all, how dare you? Um, you know, I'm not in the business to like name and shame, but uh, James Berardinelli, how fucking dare you? I'll send you my coordinates. I will fight you. Don't you ever make that comparison again. You're done. <laughs> I'll beat you up. High school bully style. Um, I'll get my dad on you. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the critics have been very, very harsh on it. Is it a perfect film? No. Does it... I think it just forgets what it's all about. Too much padding, it just bores itself of itself. And I think a lot of scenes leave a bit to be desired. But, you know, I thought Cage was fine. And I think something you said earlier, that Cage and Pearlman just seem to be in two very different films. I think that's completely spot on. Although I did like their sort of buddy dynamic. I thought that was what really um, had to sort of shoulder most of the weight of this film. Um, But I think if I could sort of one way... 50p from CEX, can't complain. Um, so <laughs> no, a 5.99 from Amazon, you know, I might have a little bit of a, a whinge. 
But uh, it's a solid two-star movie, and it's a film I would certainly, I'd certainly put on again in the background. I'm doing something else. I'm, you know, who knows? I'm kind of doing some writing or you know whatever I'm doing. I'm more than happy to watch *Season of the Witch* again. I had a good time twice. Um, <laughs> and you know what? That's worth two stars. One star for each time I had a good time. <laughs> oh, take that, James Barad and Ali, you, you, you bastard! Um, we had a good two-star time. Um, but on on that bombshell, I think that brings us towards the end of the episode. Um, so, of course, uh, thank you so much for joining me, Alexander Cronenberg. And for the listeners, uh, where can we find you on the socials? Uh, so I'm mainly on Twitter at Cronenwords. Uh, I write for Horrified magazine, uh, Film Stories, uh, Moving Pictures Film Club as well. Uh, so seek me out wonderful and the link to the twitter page will be in the description below but that brings us to the end of this episode to the end of season of the witch thank you so much for listening if you have been we will of course see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on cajun it's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye